You're listening to Stories Behind the Songs with Chris Blair. For more information, check out chrisblair.com. Hey guys, this is Chris Blair, and here's another episode of Stories Behind the Songs. And on this week's episode, we are joined by my buddy Christian Bush. Now, you may know Christian from the band Sugarland. Uh, his production skills on Lindsay L's records, or maybe you've just listened to his solo work. Either way, this week you'll learn it all as we dive into the life and career of one of music's most versatile and talented artists. I love this dude. Uh, from his early days raised in music on the Suzuki method to his adventures in rock, country, and beyond, Christian Bush, his stories that are so diverse, uh, just as his music is. You're going to hear all about Christian's first record deal at the age of 22 and how he, listen to this, crazily uh, managed to keep his record deal throughout the entire music career. He's always had a record deal since the age of 22. Um, You're also going to hear about his introduction to Jennifer Nettles, uh, how he auditioned her, um, and the origins of the band Sugarland that we've all come to love. Uh, You'll learn about the work he has done producing other artists and other musical adventures uh, that he's gotten into throughout the years. It's really cool. Uh, If you listened to country music at all during uh, around 2008, 2009, you know all you got to hear is all I want to do. You know that song. You're going to hear the story behind that song, All I Want to Do. Baby Girl and Babe, as well as the twists and turns of Christian's career, both within and outside of Sugarland. Um, he is such an icon in the music industry, but also manages to be an extremely kind and humble guy. Like I said, I love this guy. He is now doing some work with Jawayan Music. You heard that right, Jawayan. Uh, you can hear all about what that even means in this week's episode and how he's continuing to broaden his experience and learn as much as he can from others. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did uh, doing it. And if you did, please help us by spreading the word of this podcast as we continue to grow. We appreciate the support. So send it to a friend, hit that like, subscribe, follow button, wherever you're listening to music and podcasts. And we can't thank you enough. Let's get to it. This is Christian Bush. Hey, everybody. Here's another episode of Stories Behind the Songs. I'm your host, Chris Blair. And today in the house, I've got the one and only Christian Bush. Hi, everybody. This What's is going gonna be on? awesome. Oh, man, I'm so excited. I'm just telling you. It's, it is. It's going to be great. I have man. weird premonitions. My kids hate it. But I think <laughs> this is going to be great. It's going to be great. So, man, let's, uh, I mean, you know, everybody knows who you are, Sugarland. Uh, I mean, just, just so much to unpack and talk about today. Well, let's go back uh, before that to the very beginning. How did you get into music in the first place and get to Nashville? I have the strangest answer to a question I get asked a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I um, and my brother, but we both sit in the same sort of weird life where we were Japanese experiments. Japanese experiments. <laughs> okay, you're going to have to explain that. <laughs> um, there is a, uh, 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 at the time, so I'm, uh, right now I'm sitting here, I'm 53 years old, uh, which means I was born in 1970. Um, in 1973, 74, um, a man named Shinichi Suzuki brought the Suzuki method to America, and the pilot program was at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. And my mother, God bless her, had decided that uh, 
she was going to just take me in and enroll me. And at the time, it was a it was an experimental um, method of teaching music that is um, based on the idea that the brain, if taught music at the time it learns language, which is between like three and five years old, if you totally immerse the human brain in a language at that time, that no matter how complicated the language, your brain will learn it. So that's what the Suzuki method was at the beginning. It was, they had all these songs uh, that you would learn on your violin, but before you could even play it or even hold it, you would listen to these five or eight songs over and over and over again every part of your day for three years. Mm. So like they had rigged up weird speakers under your pillows while you slept <laughs> and and it was the only thing you hear on the radio and it's all you hear um every time that you're walking around the house you know i remember listening to anything other than that and been going whoa what is that you know i remember first time i heard like kenny rogers i was like whose voice is that you can have lyrics you know yeah uh but i was a kid and um uh, the idea is, would you learn music as a language? That was the question. And this is why we were an experiment. Because at the time, they hadn't really proven it out. Now, the Suzuki method is very well established as a way to do ear training on kids when they're young. So um, <laughs> by the time you can physically move, you know, because you carry on a margarine box for like 10 months <laughs> under yeah. your shoulder. Yeah. And uh, but by the time you can physically make noise and you're like, oh, this is how... What? And then you can like whip out Vivaldi, but you, it's only because you know what note goes next. And if you, all you have to do is figure out how to make it make the noise. Yeah. You know how, which order the noises go in. So that, yeah. uh, that's how I've, I've never had a conscious memory of not being able to play music. Yeah. Wow. That's so, I mean, I guess like, you know, even like today with my kids, you know, I'm singing them songs at the end of the night that my parents, saying to me right and it's just like i guess it's just hardwired so yeah. i guess that's the same kind of concept but um programming yeah yeah you're, you're programming anyone you know it's uh the same thing as computers you know put good music in and you'll get good music out uh what's weird for me is um the idea that i grew up thinking i was playing a violin and wondered what a fiddle was it seemed like a different thing mm -hmm. and it turns out it's the same instrument yeah. It's just yeah. a different attitude. So uh, you can imagine as the, the other kid that made it out of Dolly Parton's hometown. I was a very odd other kid. But I did. And now this is all I do. Yeah. Like I just make stuff up and play music. Yeah. So that's how it started. Okay. So then when did you, when did you leave East Tennessee and move to Nashville? So I never moved to Nashville. Okay. So that's kind of fun. Okay. Um, but I, I left East Tennessee. Um, my family <laughs> is in the food business or was in the food business. And there was some like very controversial set of years that are kind of blurry in my brother and I's past. Um, and they, they, they sold the company to one side of the family or the other or whatever. But um, the family shame of the family business not being there anymore uh, precipitated my brother and I both being shipped off to schools in another state because they were too, I don't know. We're still trying to unpack that. But um, I ended up, of all things in the world, in Connecticut. And my brother ended up in Massachusetts. 
at a very young age. Like I was 14, 15. He was 11, mm. 12. And so we left home. And uh, I went through a part of high school up there. It was a, like a boarding school, like legitimately stuff you read about in a book or see on a TV, like a movie or something. Yeah. Uh, that looked like Hogwarts, you know. And uh, then I, I went, I came to Atlanta back to the South to go to college. I went okay. to Emory University in Atlanta. And from there, I got a record deal in New York and uh, with my rock band. And when that's how I made it back down here and then didn't actually come back to Nashville until I started the country band 10 years later. <laughs> wow. And when I did that, uh, I had to start coming up here. And yeah. until, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago, I stayed in hotels. So I didn't really live here. Wow. So I, I bought a, a little place and now I just drive back and forth between Atlanta and Nashville. So I guess, I guess technically I live here and I live in Atlanta. Yeah. I did not know that about you. I mean, we, we were talking before this. It's been uh, several years since, since we've, we've seen, seen each, each other. other. I know. But I went to the, the wrong day, place because yeah. you are a, like a successful entrepreneur as well as being an awesome person. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, like, uh, you know, back in the day when I'd see you quite a bit, like I, I never, I never knew that like that was the case. So that, I'm learning yeah. something right now. So that's, that's awesome. Um, so let's talk about like, um, what, what came, what came first for you? Was it more of like the instruments because of like the, the hardwire and then, and then lyrics or did you, did it, was it like all mm. together when you started writing songs? It was actually, I think, a function of I wanted – I was listening uh, – um, at some point, my family – I was listening to the radio, and I was a, maybe early middle school, so maybe fifth grade, sixth grade. Yeah. And I remember um, listening and thinking, man, how did they make that sound? Like, how did they – like, I loved all sorts of strange – like – when you're from East Tennessee and you hear something like The Clash or Adam and the Ants or any of this kind yeah. of like strange new new wave stuff that was first wave stuff coming out of UK or even REM was uh, like I had I, when the first time I heard it, I was like, wait, what? You can sing two lyrics on top of each? Like I didn't understand other than 70s, you know, FM radio what I was listening to or bluegrass. That was it. That's yeah. all I'd been exposed to. And then like crap tons of classical music. Yeah. So um, I remember uh, they, I had to go to a new school. So um, they were, they were, my family was moving out of Sevierville and into Knoxville. And um, all those kids were very different. They had, they were very wealthy. They were, they, they were sending me to a private school. I, I didn't know you had to have like a certain kind of shirt that had like an animal or something on it. Like I didn't know the structure of what was happening because we lived in a different place. Yeah. And uh, so I had to learn it real fast. And when I did, um, carrying my violin to school uh, in this new school was uh, getting, I was getting made fun of a lot. And, you know, I can take it, a lot, most of it, but it, it, it really hurt my feelings. And I was, instead of getting like mad or retreating, I was like, how can I pivot? <laughs> yeah. You know, how can I make the back of the bus, like sitting in the front of the bus, how can I get like, get these people off my back, but also maybe I can use it like Kung Fu, like, like somebody's coming at you, use that momentum. Yeah. So uh, I begged my mother. I said, please, 
can I quit playing violin? She's like, no, you were so good at this and you started and I invested and all this stuff. And I was like, well, look, what will it take for me to play guitar? Because I think I might be able to get like a girl to look at me. <laughs> and she's like, all right, I'll make you a deal. And she knew that I couldn't read music because early on in Suzuki, they don't, at the time, they didn't teach you to do that. Later, now they do. Yeah. And even five years later, they did. So I made a deal with her. She said, look, if you'll play in the youth symphony here in Knoxville for a season, I'll let you quit playing violin. And I was like, boy, you know how to really twist that screw, don't you? Because I can't read a single thing. And the way those things work is you come in and rehearse on a Wednesday and perform on Saturday mm. for a whole season. And I can't even read the music that's going on. Yeah. So I took a, uh, the Walkmans had just started with a record button. Yep. So I begged for one of those for a birthday. And this is how, this was my calculation. I went in and I would fake rehearsals on Wednesday at the little place and record the dude next to me and take it home and learn it by ear and play it by Saturday. And I did it enough times that she let me out and I got a guitar and it was a slippery slope. Um, it was within a couple of months when I was 13 that I was like, oh, this is how you play this Van Halen song or this is how you play this R.E.M. song. Because I, I could figure it out by ear. But I, what I couldn't understand is how they came up with the lyrics. Like, who does that? Mm -hmm. And, of course, I thought every band did that themselves. Right. I didn't know there were two jobs until literally like 20 years ago. <laughs> so uh, I wrote lyrics to just try to sound like I was on the radio. That was it. Yeah. And uh, then I had I started bands because I wanted to find a way to get on the radio. It had nothing to do with <laughs> something inside of me that was a voice that needed to get out. That was not my thing. I just wanted to figure out how they did that. So uh, I even had to go to the store and say, what's that other sound? I, my, like I got a little four track. They had just made those. Yeah. You had these cassette things where you could – be the, the each person you could be the guitar player and be the singer and then go back and rewind it and yeah so you didn't have you don't have to be a one-man band you could learn each instrument and uh, my brother and i divided the instruments up and still to this day <laughs> and he plays half of them and i play half of them and we would make things on this four track and i remember going and going how do i get this sound and they're like that's a bass guitar it's like, you're kidding me. <laughs> They're like, no. And this is what it is. I was like, okay, well, how do I get one of those? They're like, well, that's, you know, $386. I was like, all right, well, can I trade you my guitar? So I would, I would play the guitar parts and go trade it in for a no bass. No way. And come back come and on. play the bass parts and then trade the bass back for my <laughs> guitar. And I'm sure these guys at Pick and Grin in Knoxville were like eye rolling. Yeah. Like, okay, buddy, <laughs> we got you, you know. I'm sure a few times they were like, oh, no, we already sold that guitar. Ah, oh, just kidding. You know? Like, yeah. Man, so that's, that's how amazing. I got there. Yeah. And I didn't really understand it. And I mean, my brother and I started making records when I was 13. He was 11. They're terrible records. I played them for no one. Yeah. But we made seven or eight of them. Like, every time we were around each other, we were just like, how do we do this? How do we do this? And we do it more. And Yeah. Man. It's, I, uh. I had a similar, you know, I, I had, I played first chair trumpet. Okay. And, uh, was a vocalist all through like high school. Right. Okay. And, but I couldn't read music. It was the same thing. I would sit. I was watching it go up and down, but I couldn't tell you what it meant. Yeah. I literally, <laughs> I would sit, uh, first chair and hold my trumpet up 
So you're and, doing the same thing. And I would watch the guy next to me. And if I heard it and watched his fingers, <laughs> I would go, okay, I could, I could literally one or two times I'd be like, okay, I have it. You know, and then I, and then they started picking it up because I would just wouldn't take my music to the stand, right? Because I didn't need it. And then oh, I was like, oh, no. so literally I got a scholarship for college for trumpet and vocals. And it's like the first week of college and they put a sheet of music in front of me and they're like, okay, audition. This. Oh my gosh. And so my scholarship was dropped and I was like, okay, now let's figure something else out. But yeah, it was the same thing. I couldn't read. I, I still, I still don't read music. I don't need it. It's crazy. And I write it. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. But so, I know I feel your pain. Yeah. Like I, I so bad wanted to go to college to play music and I couldn't get in anywhere because I would fail to sight read. Yeah. I even tried to do it on bass because there are fewer strings. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I saved just... my rejection letter out of pure spite to Berkeley College of Music, swearing that if it ever happened, I was going to publish it in Rolling Stone one day, like a full page ad. Yeah. I never did. <laughs> so <laughs> I still have it. You 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 should you should <laughs> no yeah. no no no. Um, okay, so okay. Uh, let's let's go. I think it's also interesting that um, you know with all of the success that Sugarland had um, and and like coming back out after after taking time off, um, like the fact that like most bands groups like they get signed to a deal. As that, and you got signed to your first major label deal, and you've still like for how long now? You got signed at twenty two, is that right? Yeah, I got it, I signed my first re record deal on a major at twenty two, and I've had a major label deal for, I mean, I'm fifty three now. So yeah, so you've had a record a long deal, time, a long time. It's been my job. Uh, yeah, <laughs> um, but talk about that, like uh, how. How did you and Jennifer get together and like how how did all of that start because you had you had the deal first and then and then you guys Well, it was a little different. Okay. Um I the record deal that I had out of college was with my partner Andrew, Andrew okay. Hira. And we got signed out of the uh, acoustic and uh pop like pop rock music scene in Atlanta. So, when we got signed, so get in your brain, my peers are not the people that I signed with in Sugarland. So a lot of people were like, oh man, you came up the same, like the year after Dirks Bentley and, and, and Miranda used to open for you. So that must be your peer set. Well, no, I got signed to Atlantic in 1993 when Stone Temple Pilots were there. Mm. And they, after us, Hootie signed like six months later. Yeah. Uh, Collective Soul, Jewel, who else was on the label? Tragically Hip from Canada had just been signed. Um, Godsmack had just been signed. And it was all out of New York. And uh, in Atlanta, so we were in a line of people who were who were getting plucked into gotcha. the, essentially major labels, yep. right? And before us was... Um, uh, Michelle Malone and Drag the River. They'd gone to Arista. Uh, the Black Crows had just been signed from there. Um, if you back up even further, so you can draw it all the way back into Athens, like REM and B-52s and all this stuff. So we were in a line. The Indigo Girls were before us by like three or four years. Yeah. And then after us would have been Sean Mullins got a deal for his song that he did. And then John Mayer. 
and then Civil Wars maybe, and then Zach Brown. Like you can see the line. Yeah. And Billy Pilgrim's over here and Sugarland's like right here, right? So this is actually that's where I come from. Okay. Is this oddity where I I uh, this will really rattle your brain a little bit. I was in New York in the hallways of Atlantic Records and the dude who was signing world music at the time was in charge of uh, this weird thing called the World Wide Web. <laughs> and so I was a little bit of a geek as my kind of side hobby. And he and I developed the first website for Atlantic, which was the Batman soundtrack. Wow. Because I was waiting for someone to cut a check for Billy Pilgrim. Right? So that, <laughs> that's actually where I come from is that history, which most people don't even – and the internet – doesn't even really remember like i'm not even on linkedin you can't even tell where i came from yeah but um what it was great for is learning and watching how all of it works right and this is like the real heyday of the machinery like i don't know like we opened for everybody like we opened it was there was a bill one night of billy pilgrim and the melvins and nirvana like we were hanging out with those guys wow um so it's a very strange way that I got here. Yeah. But by the time uh, Billy Pilgrim was playing in Atlanta, Andrew and I, that's the name of the band's Billy Pilgrim, but it's Andrew. It's just to be, that's our favorite Vonnegut character, a Vonnegut novel. And uh, by the time that was uh, working really well in Atlanta, we would, we'd be on tour around the world, came back, and our opening act, we'd say, well, who's popular right now? In our town, because we were told whenever you come home, always pull people up. Yeah. Because that was the Atlanta like way of doing it, yeah. right? Um, and Jennifer was our opening act for years because she was the best one that hadn't gotten a deal yet. Yeah. So for years, that's what happened. And when uh, Andrew and uh, my partner, Billy Pilgrim, he was like, man, this, I think it's run its course for me. I got to go to California. I'm chasing a different life. And when he did that, I was kind of stuck with all this like ambition yeah, and then <laughs> momentum, but also like knowledge. I now know how to do this and I'm not even 30, Yeah, you know, and I know how to do it well and poorly. You know, I know what, sh what skills I do need and what skills I definitely don't need. Yep how to save money, how to spend money well, how to make records. So uh, when when we started Sugarland, <laughs> it really was a, a writing experiment with Kristen. And then at some point she called me and was like, hey, man, um, I think we should start a band on this. And I was like, no, I, I do not need a band. I need a band like I need a hole in the head. I have a band and it's like I'm, it's, it's slowing down and I just don't want to be responsible for anybody right now. And then my wife at the time was like, and by the way, we're pregnant. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, like breathing a back. Yep. And uh, I was like, well, I, I guess if this is not going to work, it'll just be a something I did. Sure enough, um, uh, we start writing these songs and I come to this sort of realization that I don't sound like a country singer. So if this is country music. And the country music was changing. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Dixie Chicks were into their, like, fourth record. And 
um, Daniel Lanois was making records with Emily Harris and 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 Willie Nelson and and we had finally seen that Uncle Tupelo couldn't stay together, but they weren't better apart. You know what I mean? Like we yeah. there was all this like beginnings of what becomes alt country, but none nobody really knew what was going on. But it sounded like acoustic rock to me. So I, we were just retooling songs that I had already put attitudes and ways to make records that I had been making for eight years in this rock scene into country music. And uh, we started taking auditions and I'd never auditioned anybody before. I'd only gotten into bands with people that I was like, man, you're awesome. You want to make a band? Right. Yeah. And that was it. And um, I, when we started auditioning people, every person in the audition system, you can see on the first Sugarland record. So if you, we were, uh, you come in and sing a song and then we write a song together because we wanted something that it was a creative co collaboration. Mm -hmm. And so there are three or four songs on that first Sugarland record and you'll see that Jennifer's name's not on them because those are the people who auditioned. Wow. And they all, they've all become artists now, yeah. you know? Yeah. But uh, they still get paid, you know, for that first Sugarland record. It was, a, it was a whole bunch of people going for an idea. Right. And uh, fourth or fifth audition was Jennifer, and I didn't think she was going to do it. She was having a fine time on her own. But she sounded great when she's – there was a song I wrote called Sugarland. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man, is it wrong if we name the band this too? And she came in and sang it, and she got to the bridge. And I'll never forget, like, the hair on my arm was like, whoo. Yeah. I was like, all right, well, let's write a song together. And the first one was, <laughs> first one was uh, not as good. And the second one was Baby Girl. Mm. And then I was like, well, if you want to do this, it's a lot of crying in a pillow, but it's a pretty cool job. Yeah. I don't think she believed me at first, <laughs> but it, 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 as it went on, it, you know, it, it worked out. So that's how we met. Okay. So then how quickly, uh, from that point did, did everything happen? Pretty quickly. Um, cause I already knew how to make records yeah. and I already knew how to get a record deal. Yep. And I already had all the structure in place. I had a business manager. I had all the stuff I needed. I knew when not to get a bus and when to get a bus, you know, like, yeah. That was probably 2000 year. Tuck was born in May of 02. It took about a year to get the deal. Okay. But we had to write the rest of the songs and then we recorded an album in Atlanta. And we're just kind of selling it from the stage. And we, we couldn't get anybody to come see us, even though Nashville's only like three and a half hours away. Right. So I had gotten my record deal with Billy Pilgrim on a showcase from 12th and Porter. Yep. So that's the only place I knew. So I just called 12th and Porter and said, hey, man, any chance you guys give us like an afternoon showcase? And they're like, sure. And I said, well, it's for a country band. And they were like, what? <laughs> yeah. And then uh, we I was I was wigged out because you know uh, those kinds of things are really terrible to perform in. Yeah. So we rented and chartered a bus like a like a greyhound, and sold tickets to our fans for the bus, <laughs> and we put a keg on it. Wow. <laughs> and we had the bus drive to Twelfth and Porter open. They all filed in. We then came in and played our fifteen minute show. <laughs> 
<laughs> they all knew what they were doing. Yep. They were there to scream and yell. And, <laughs> Dude, that's brilliant. And I love it. We got offered a deal backstage. I love it. That was that's, great. I mean, it, it's kind of nutty, like, but it was a nutty thing to, I mean, if they're not going to come to you, go to them. Yeah. I mean, and thinking outside of the box, and I mean, just like, yeah. It's kind of nutty, but that whole thing was just a big old dream to see if it would work. And then when it started to work, um, I already had muscles to know what to do. Right. Almost in any situation. Like, a lot of the people who played in our original band, or even now, today, were people I just pulled from my Billy Pilgrim world. Like, Travis, who drums now, was drumming for Billy Pilgrim really? back in the day. Yeah. And he went to Better Than Ezra for a while and then came back. And my brother, same thing. He went and played with Train for a while and came back. And Yeah. It's pretty cool. That is. That's awesome. So, um, you wrote everything for Sugarland. What's, you know, talking about stories behind the songs, what's, what's your favorite story of the creation of one of your songs? A song? That's probably two or three that are fun to talk about. One of them is, um, <laughs> I, uh, at the time, you know, when things get going and it's still true today, even when I talk to artists that I'm working with. Uh, things get going, they move faster than you think they do. And life is sped up anyway. But even the acceleration of music and the way that you, if something starts catching on the radio or catching online, you got to go out and support it. And so you are, uh, we call it involuntary travel. Like travel you're not choosing. It's travel you must do to do the job, but it is happening to you. You are not excitedly planning it, right? Mm -hmm. And at the time, I... uh I was, I, I had two children and they were young and, um, like I hadn't even stopped long enough to, to realize what was happening. But I was every Sunday I was home and every Wednesday I left from Atlanta. So yeah. I had a couple of days and when I get home, I was, uh, constantly mesmerized by my, my second child, my daughter. She was just this magical little creature and mm. she weirdly looked like me. And we kind of were both quiet at the same time and happy at the same time. I was like, are you like a me? <laughs> you know? So um, uh, it was very uh, typical at the time that I'd come home and, and, and Jill would just like shove the kids at me and leave for a number of days because yeah. she'd been overwhelmed. Right. And Camille and I were sitting and it was kind of like this. There was like a little coffee table and the house was tiny. Um, I hadn't really figured out that I had money yet. And um, she was just like holding on to the coffee table and she would just bounce. And I was like, well, that's cool. And then I would just take video of her doing that and then come back on the bus and torture people by making them watch it. Yeah. And one day I was doing, <laughs> I was doing that and I was playing, like I was trying to make her dance. <laughs> and this is all I was, I was like, and she would just bounce and be like, Daddy, keep playing it. <laughs> so I, I I take it, I take the video, and I'm torturing Nettles on the bus. And we have uh we have just asked back this guy who was an artist, um, when on our first record that uh, Jennifer had really like said, Christian man, you're gonna love this dude. 
he's opening for us. We're in San Diego or something at like a, I don't know, a wine festival or a pie festival or a barbecue or whatever they yeah, were playing. Yeah. And he was opening for us and it was Bobby Penson. Oh, and uh, we had met him and I had liked him and we had asked him to come to Atlanta and write a song with us, even as an artist, because we thought well, that was probably smarter than asking a writer because we didn't really know any writers. And uh, we he came to Atlanta and we wrote Want To together. And uh, so Bobby had been bothering me since he had had a number one with us. And that was our first one as well uh, to come back out and write some more on this next record because he was maybe decided he didn't want to be an artist anymore. So maybe this was his job yep. and we might've been the gateway drug, <laughs> you know, to get yep. him into this job. So he's like, man, hook me up. I was like, well, you can come out on the bus, but when we're home, we're not writing. We are trying to recover from yep. what's happened. The whiplash that's happening. And he came out on the bus and that was the, I think that was the week, maybe the only week he came out. Can't even remember, but uh, I was just, torturing nettles in the afternoon with this video make i'm like don't you see and she's like yeah it's so cute and then he gets i kind of see her smile go away like okay you know i was rewinding yeah, it rewinding yeah. it and uh we had just gotten to the point where the bus um you know there's, there's the kind that you have like a doorknob like a regular doorknob mm -hmm. and then it gets fancier it's like star trek it's like chickens gets yep we just gotten one of those buses and uh she was like i'm taking a nap and she went back taking a nap. And you hear the bus door like, Shook. and like two or three minutes later, I'm sitting up there trying to like shoot the shit with Bobby, and it's back up. She's like, "Damn you, Christian Bush!" <laughs> and so we wrote that song right then, um, simply based on that. So, yeah. so, and and I try to use that as an example for people that are interested in writing music, especially in Nashville. Quit. Thinking it's about the word. There's a there's a whole part of music that is just about the melody mm. that we forget a lot. Yeah. Because the other the other two pieces of that triangle or or weird, you know, a three legged table, right? Um any two of the three, the song will work. If you have all three. Man, you can never put it down. Yeah. But it's the rhythm and the melody and the lyric. And if you can get that, you know, most people just forget about the melody part. We keep reusing the other dude's melodies that mm -hmm. we're programming in our heads. Mm -hmm. And there's fewer and fewer of them that we use nowadays. But at the time, that's all that was. We had to figure out. We had to back into it. And, uh, you know, it's like all good songs it's about sex so yeah <laughs> man what a great story um okay so i want to uh i want to get into you know some some other other things so yeah, let's let's whatever you want we're, we're going to jump around a little bit um i've got to hear uh i know part of this but i want everybody else to hear the story so like you kind of hinted at it earlier that your family is in the food business. That's right. So let's get it out on the table. Sure. Bush's baked beans. Bu yes, Bush's beans. So I grew up, in, my granddaddy's Jack Tucker Bush. My dad is Jack Coben Bush. And technically I would have been Jack Turner Bush if my mother had not hard left in 1970 yeah. and called me Christian with a K. Thanks, mom. <laughs> Freaking carrying that around. Uh, so, uh, uh, they own Bush Brothers along with other people in their family. And we're a very small family. So my granddaddy didn't have any brothers or sisters. 
So um, it keeps getting uh, inherited down in a very small space. And the other part of the family has lots of brothers and sisters. So it was all spread out. Yep. So uh, until I was about 11, I was supposed to run a cannery because I'm the oldest. Yeah. So I knew, I know every line. I knew every machine that puts labels on this, that retorts beans this way. I knew the truck drivers. Like, I knew everything. (laughs) I was, granddaddy would carry me around. I was the proud grandchild, right? Yeah. Uh, And it's like a three-way stop outside of Sevierville. So it's even more remote than a Dollywood. Like, it's way up in the corner. Yeah. And, um, you know, I just kind of grew up in that space and... People in the mountains are are different. They're even different than people in the sit that are in cities in the mountains. You know, they the super kind, big hearted humans, sometimes paranoid. They they don't trust and let if they trust you, they trust you. If they don't know you, they don't trust you ever. Yeah. Right. You have yeah. to like find your way in. So uh when I was about eleven, so eight nineteen eighty one, I would guess. We're still unpacking this still today because everyone has now kind of passed away. We can actually start asking questions. Um, uh, the family, like I just woke up one day and they said, well, granddaddy's been fired. I'm like, you can't fire him. He's the president. Well, I guess they had sold, they like forcefully sold the shares of the company to the other side of the family. And uh, so, you know, one afternoon, I was no longer in the food business. Yeah. I didn't care. I was 11, you know. I was I cared about Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was I didn't know. And fiddles. And fiddles. <laughs> yeah. yeah, barely. Um <laughs> I didn't know. So, uh my brother and I are the first generation of that family to not have any of that stuff. Hmm. And weirdly, uh, this is a fun fact. Um our father passed uh, a number of years ago, and we've been kind of just sitting around waiting to see if there's like some magic pot of gold that somebody buried. Because people in the mountains bury stuff. Yeah. They legitimately hide things. Um, and they're so generationally driven because of the way sort of survival works in Appalachia. You know, you, you your family, like there's a lot of pride in that stuff. Um, turns out there's just absolutely no money left <laughs> at all. It's fine with us. We weirdly went off into our own world in a whole different vocation and we're successful. Yeah. Um, so I, it's a conversation with my kids all the time. Like they're like, I like, you know, the family business is food. And they're like, no, no dad, family business is music. Yeah. You and uncle Brandon are like music. Like it's everything. Everywhere we look, and I'm like, no, actually, it's not. <laughs> so uh, yeah, just, there you go. Yeah, now I had to know. bring it up. It's just such a cool story. Um, all right, so let's talk about like uh, Sugarland took a break. Yeah. Um, and walk me through like what happened, and then you you know you guys kind of reinvented yourselves, and um, you've been really good at at doing that throughout your whole career. Um. <laughs> you know, what we've already talked about and then what sure. I want to get to that we were talking about before we got on. Oh, this yeah, a yeah, yeah, bit. yeah. Okay. But, um, I'll, 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 I'll condense it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, just like w- walk through that stage of like what happened and then deciding to, to come back out. Sure. Um, Sugarland, you got to put it in your brain for a second. 2010, we released a record called incredible machine and it was, um, 
record number four, maybe, or five for us. And each record had been selling more and more and more and more. While at the same time, between 2003 and 2010, the record business had been just like subtracting the number of even albums they manufactured because iTunes had been invented. Right. So people were now downloading things. We're not even to streaming yet. Like I hadn't even started. Yeah. Uh, so everyone's panicking and all of our friends that are getting record deals are getting 360 deals where the record company participates in your your ticket sales and your your t-shirt sales and all this stuff. And we didn't because we our record deal was earlier yep. in time. So the business is failing and declining at like 30 to 50% a year to where what they made in 2008, by the time they're in 2010, they make 150% less than they made. Yeah. Which is insane. Yeah. If you think about what it, it was a panic, if you, if you were in that business, what that was. But for musicians, for us, we were in this weird upward movement because we kept selling more and more tickets and more and more people were being pulled into country music that maybe didn't think that they loved country music. Mm -hmm. And somewhere between us and Taylor and a couple other acts at that time, we were like the gateway drug for mm -hmm. a lot of people in America that were like, man, I like all kinds of music except country music. You yeah. know, there were those people that were like, you know, live and die Pearl Jam. Yeah. You know, and they were slowly softening their hearts to these stories and these melodies and these songs as Sugarland became more and more popular. And uh, we were trying to kind of marry that. We were at the top of our thing. And I'd been warned by a lot of people, man, when you get to the, when you're the one that's pulling the chain at the label, the pressure increases. Like if, like, when we got there, Shania Twain was pulling the chain. She was the one that was selling so many records that no matter what, no matter how successful you were, you were not important because she's that much more successful. Yeah. Well, I happened to have signed my record deal in 1993 or four when Hootie signed. We sold like 150,000 records and they sold 16 million in a year. So I had already emotionally understood what happened? Because my friends and Nudie suddenly could not do that the next record. I watched them implode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, wait, what? Yeah. So I knew there was a lot of dynamic happening. So when we get to the end of 2011, uh, Jennifer and I have this weird thing happen when we were on stage. There was a, like a, a, like a mini tornado showed up in the middle of the, of, right before a show started. And it was after the opening act, right before we were walking on stage, and it crushed a uh, state fair. The ceiling fell on us, and it fell on us and all of our fans. And uh, it freaked us out. People died. Uh, our crew didn't want to come back out. Opening act bailed. She was like, I'm, I can't do this anymore. Mm. It was just really, really strange because nobody's supposed to die in music. It's sure, not a contact yeah. sport, you know? Yeah. But I think that shook a lot of stuff. I think that was the actual shaking mm -hmm. of the brain that uh, pretty much a year later, Jennifer came to me and she's like, hey, man, I want to I want to do this by myself and I want to have a kid and all this stuff. And I, of course, had an anxiety attack <laughs> <laughs> quietly on the, I, on the inside. I was losing my mind on the outside. I was smiling and going, absolutely, because, you know, nobody wants to go to yeah. dinner with somebody that doesn't want to go to dinner with you. Right. You know, Um so uh, that transition immediately hit like a, a button of 
what am I going to do? Because we kept uh, saving our money, but there wasn't enough to go forever. Mm -hmm. So you had to do something. I'd already seen this. I'd already had this conversation 10 years before with my other singing partner. So uh, I, I just processed it and immediately was like, well, I'll just make more music. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's what happened. Um, and in the making of more music, I accidentally had like a top 20 single on country radio yep. as myself, yep. which was not supposed to happen. <laughs> but uh, it's the job I knew. So it was a job I could do. It just, I didn't know if I had the songs or not. I'd never written as a writer in this town. So I went sort of hat in hand everywhere thinking, what if all this success had a, me surrounded by yes people? What if my songs actually kind of sucked and I was just rolling on the momentum of the band? What if I wasn't getting better? Hmm. So I went experimenting. I went to uh, Sweden and wrote with Swedish writers and the UK and write with British writers and then went to LA and write with LA writers. I was like, teach me things. Um, I, I need to learn more. And I wrote two or 300 songs and picked 10 or 12 and put a record out and it worked, Yep. which it wasn't supposed to work. Um, and then all that sort of evolved into like, I produced a Lindsay L record to try to get a trade to get more of my stuff out with the label. <laughs> yeah, I did all sorts of whatever it took, but I have a lot of skills. I just didn't have a lot of people that knew I did. Yeah. And, uh, I, I wrote two or three musicals because people asked me to, it wasn't, right. I didn't want, I, it wasn't something I wanted to do, but you're doing one right now too, right? I'm, I'm in another one right yeah. now. I think I'm in two right now. Uh, but I didn't know that any of this stuff was off. A thing you could do because in town they told me well if you're an artist they won't cut your songs i was like why because i write more than we use yeah and they said well the question will always be if you didn't record it why would somebody else and i was mm. like huh and i would ask a couple of artists similar things and you know they were like yeah sometimes you got to change your name so I would just pitch to other artists. I would give Kenny stuff or I'd give uh, Miranda or I'd give him songs that I'd yeah. written and say, what do you think? Or do you want to cut this? And everyone was so kind, but nobody ever did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so I, I, that, that's why I had thought maybe I'm not that good. So I need to practice more. I need to go learn more. And I would go in and sit with uh, these incredible songwriters, like people you know, like their names are in the hall of fames and I'd sit and go, okay, teach me what you do. Mm -hmm. You know? And they'd be like, well, what are you talking about, man? You, you succeed. You know what you're doing. I'm like, there's a chance I don't. <laughs> yeah. And wow. that's the attitude I kind of, I, I keep no matter what. Yeah. I think, I mean, first of all, I think that's a, a, a great way to approach it. I think you're also, uh, very humble which is beautiful, but like the songs that you've written are incredible. So you know what you're doing. Um, but I also like, uh, never stop learning that kind of like, yeah. you know, I, I think that's super smart, but, um, yeah, I would give you a lot more credit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I accept. I, I do, I do have a bucket where you can put yeah. money and accolades. <laughs> <laughs> um, well then, so, so then how did, 
how did Sugarland kind of relaunch? Relaunch what was that? Yeah, sure. Um, it was very interesting because it was a little bit of a stutter step. I had been trying to follow up my my radio hit that I had my one hit right, and uh, I had gone in to kind of rec re to record a new record. I had collected a bunch of songs, and the deal was if I produced a Lindsay L record, I could do my own. So I did. The Lindsay thing was a number one record. Yeah, yep. great. She's so good. She is mm. so great, and she did a great job on what I put her through <laughs> <laughs> because it was a lot of learning to be an artist space. Yeah. And uh, in that trade, I started to make a record and had this weird experience during the making of the record where I think I was telling you about this earlier, where I, I uh, went and played with an R&B all-star band in Atlanta for one moment. And it re, it just completely reshaped the way I was asking certain questions in music and re-recorded a bunch of songs with those guys. I was getting ready to go in to put that out and I get a phone call from Jennifer going, Hey, so you want to go do this again? Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, absolutely. I do, yes, I do. Uh, I said, but the rule is I have to produce it because that's my job right now. And if you know, you, this ends up not working or you run out on this game again, I just want you to know this is a job I'm actually doing. Yep. And I need to be supported in that job. Is there a job you're doing you need to be supported in? Can we do this as a team? And she's like, yeah, you know, like um, I'm really into Broadway stuff and musicals. And I was like, <laughs> cool. Uh, and in that space, what we found was that uh, she's like, I don't have any time. I'm raising my kid. I'm in New York. I'm, I'm single. You know, like all this stuff. Yep. And I was like, great, I'll come to you. So we would, I would fly up there and we'd write between like noon and three. And we wrote the whole thing in like five days. Wow. I think really? part, yeah, the whole, the whole record. And, um, and then came and started to record it. And we record in two days. Cause I already know the how to do record. it. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, come on. Cause we're, we know them. Yeah. Uh, uh, and this is something I do. Right. I legitimately do this for a, a living. Yeah. So, uh, I would, you know, I, I would stay up all night in between our writing days finishing the songs or getting them right and prepping the next day and go, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And she and I are really quick writers. Yeah. So we can write two or three in a day and they'd be good. Yeah. We didn't write that many. We left over. Like we didn't have a lot of strays. If it wasn't working, I'd just kill it, move it to the left and we'd start on something else. But we're, uh, you know, there's a cat, there's a, a spark that happens whenever she and I write and it's been consistent. So uh, we put that record together, and it was, there was a last-minute ad to will you record this Taylor Swift record song. And I said, you know, we don't cut anybody else's song, so no. And we've never cut an outside song. Yeah. Um, you're going to have to have a good reason why we do this. Well, they said, well, you know, um, the little big town had just had a hit with one of her songs. Maybe the industry really would like it. And I said, you know what? If she'll sing it with us, I'll do it. And uh, last session on the last day, last song, I get the phone call going, it's a go. So cool. But you have to use the vocal in the demo. I was like, really? Oh, really? And I was like, okay. But can I do anything I want to it? Because... I'm going to need to tune this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And I don't, and, and so uh, 
literally while we were sitting there, I came up with that. I think I almost copped it off of a Tracy Chapman song. Um, now that we all know that song, um, like the the riff at the top yeah. of it, all uh -huh. that that whole stuff. I had to make it up because the chord changes were rolling through a different thing, and um, then I can flew her vocal in, and then had Jennifer sing, and then I did the same thing I did when we did, worked with Lady Gaga, where I'd have Jennifer sing, and then I'd vocal line the other one to Jennifer's, and then remove her so that it's phrased the way Sugarland would phrase it, mm -hmm. rather than the way the singer phrased it. That was kind of cool. Wow. So we really built something out of the Legos that we were given. Yeah. That I thought was really good. And yeah. and and Taylor was proud of it. She seemed really cool. Wanted to make a video. She was really into directing at the time. I yeah. was like, sure. And we knew her from way back. Like, we all started. Sure, yeah. She was younger than us and started. Her, uh, I remember her opening, and we were all kind of trying to figure out the internet. <laughs> like, all that stuff. So they were... The superstar part hadn't quite hit, but what I never knew is we were caught in the, until afterwards, we were caught in the struggle of her leaving Scott's label. Mm -hmm. That was the last crowbar between each other. And I, I thought we were doing something for the art of it. <laughs> I didn't know I was being used as a player <laughs> on a pawn on a board. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But regardless, what I've learned is it doesn't matter what other people's intentions are. It's what you make out of it. Right. So, 100%. so, so don't, it's not about you. Never was about you. You know, it's, it's, it's about the person that's listening to it. Yep. This episode is brought to you by Sennheiser microphones. When we first started this podcast, we were using some older microphones and Sennheiser came in and sponsored us and gave us some MK4s and 914s. And I mean, I'm telling you, it's made all of the difference in the world. We love these microphones. We use them at the listening room as well. And I just can't say enough great things about them. Go check out Sennheiser.com. If you are into music in any way, their microphones are hands down the best on the planet. Go check them out, Sennheiser.com. And thank you, Sennheiser, for the support and the sponsorship. We love y'all. So you're also, uh, you're, you're doing like, like this music with, uh, like the, the, the guys from India oh, and, yeah. <laughs> uh, and like this Jamaica and Hawaii. I'm doing all like, sorts of crazy like, stuff like, right what now. What is this? Like, this is. The, I don't like, know. But so country music in the last, uh, if you look at the charts in the last, or even the sales charts, now that we have an adjusted weird equivalent chart, whatever that is, uh, that calculates streams as sales, right? Yeah. There are more country, country has more position in sales right now than it has in a very long time. And uh, where you used to see it dominated by like female pop stars um, or even, you know, like female rap, uh, what you're seeing now is like four and five country songs in the top 10 of sales every week. And what that's actually doing, not to the people that are counting dollars, but to the people who are young and dreaming and listening, is that it's, it's speaking a language of music that is typically reserved for pop ditties that program your brain, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so what you're getting is country ditties that are programming your brain. And so now what you've got is a bunch of people going... Hey man, how do we do this? So 
And when they when they go try to figure out which country person is probably available to go have this conversation from a creating standpoint, <laughs> they are not going through publishers. You know, they're people that are at the early parts of thinking this. And one of them happens to be people that are in the reggae world. Like, what's how do I get reggae and country music to go together? Because I'm a reggae artist and I love country music. Yeah. Oh, then you find me. I mean, historically, Sugarland was always the Teflon country band. Like, you could come play with us on a stage and it wouldn't stick to you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, see what you're right? Yeah. So you could be Rihanna and we'd be like, yeah, come on into country music. And then it just wouldn't be a problem. Yep. Beyonce, we did that with Beyonce as well. We did it with Lady Gaga. Like, you could come in and do it and not be considered like you were exploiting. You were just having fun with us. Yeah. We're the kids in high school that get along with everybody. And a little nuts, but okay, you succeeded. Right. Um, and experimental while still sounding country. So that's what's happening. So uh, whether you are from India and you like uh, country music, what does it feel like when you smash those together? If you are, uh, if you love ska and reggae and roots stuff, like what does it sound like when we squish that together? I mean, Atlanta's had, I live in a, Atlanta a lot and there's a lot of trap music there. And trap music is very, very interesting as an evolution of music. And, uh, you know, you always hear it in now in Nashville, you hear all these trap hats on the t- mm-hmm. on top of everything. And so we've been doing it over and over. And I keep explaining to everybody that it, country music is not like some sort of um, colored thread, right? It's not a thing. It is a redefined thing called music of the people. It is the thing that tells mm. the stories. Love that. Yeah. So music people change. <laughs> Then there's all sorts of different kinds of people from different places that eat all sorts of different food. Yep. But if they all want to sing this music, they don't have to sing the same song. You just start to have to understand what about country music is, is, is tickling you. Like, what is it that's making you to where you can't not look at it or can't not listen to it? Or if it brings you comfort, what does that mean? Um, there's a lot of British writers uh, and UK and European writers that are and artists who are like, Man, country music. I'm like, yeah. You understand this is like Scottish reels. Yeah. We're reserving it to you the way K-pop is reserving Michael Jackson to us. Yeah. (laughs) It started here and now we're obsessed with it. (laughs) Yeah. And you think it's from over there, but it's yours. Right. You know, I keep trying to like take people out of you're not one color or another or one political or another it doesn't matter if you like this it makes you feel better yeah let's make more of that right because you only have the ear of the people around you for a little while and if what your job is is to use this genre and this avenue to reach people you don't know and make them feel better that's okay yeah that's that's a job that's yep. a job you can, you can wake up in the morning and go do yeah and feel oh, good about and it. feel good about it yeah so it's it's kind of fun. As yeah. a gateway drug, I guess so that's me. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to see what you come up with. You're writing you're writing today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm writing today. It, so it's, wrote yesterday with yeah. two new artists. Brand one from New Zealand, one from North Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't typically get phone calls. I don't have publishers, so I don't really you have to know me or find me somewhere. Yeah. And then I have to it has to be it has to fit into my upside down cake schedule. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, man, this is this has been so fun. Uh, I've got a couple more questions okay. before we wrap up. So, uh, what would you say um, out of everything that you've done? Um, what would you say your favorite song is? And do you want to play anything? Well, certainly I'll play you a song. Um, of all the things I've done, what is my favorite? Well, that changes. Usually the fresh baked cookies are the most interesting. You know, like <laughs> I just want to eat like warm cookies. Um, I'd say we were talking about this a little earlier. One of the most interesting experiences that I've had is in the last year I, I released 52 songs over four albums in a year. Yeah. So, uh, kind of got this crazy idea that I didn't know how old anybody was in country music anymore. And COVID happened when I turned 50. Like yeah. I was, it's, and I didn't have any birthday parties or anything cause we were all locked up. So I was like, well, maybe I didn't turn 50, <laughs> you know, like maybe, <laughs> maybe those didn't happen. Time stopped. All yeah. the Grammys during COVID were just like zero. Yep. Uh, so I, I decided I wanted to put all this music out on my 52nd birthday. I'm called 52. And every, I, again, I was wondering if people were yesing me. <laughs> Scott ended up putting it out on Big Machine. And uh, every three months, I dropped an entire new album. But the first of those four was that R&B experiment that I had had. At, that is my second solo record. And I still listen to it, and I am shocked at mm. what it sounds like. So. Um, if the the last song on that record, literally, we it feels like Earth, Wind, and Fire has just parachuted into a country song. It is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and you just want to like put it on, and it's the kind of thing where afterward, after they they played it down twice, and they had a Franklin's horn section come in and do all this arrangements, and uh, they don't write any of it down. They play it slowly and then speed it up. And then say hit record. And then mm. they stop and then they write the next section. So it's never linear. I mean, it's never repetitive. So yeah. there's, no, uh, there's no such thing as a cut and a paste in this world. Yeah. The next one has to be different than the previous one because why would you be listening to it if it was the same? So Right? Yeah. So when you go listen to this stuff, uh, boom. So uh, there are a couple, there are uh, probably two songs on that record I think are, are my favorite recordings I've done in a very long time. Mm. And I think it's because I don't know what's happening. Yeah. If I know what's happening, then I can process it as truth. And then I can sit it down and go, I made that recording, this recording. I worried over it for this many hours. Here you go. But those, I don't even understand what's happening there. Yeah. And I don't think I ever will. And I'm not sure I ever can. Yeah. Or want to. Or want to. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. It's so cool. Uh, and then, I yeah, I'll play you a song. I, I'll play Baby Girl because it's kind of fun to hear it yeah. with the sad bearded version. It's a real thing. Um, let's see here. This is the key I played in. I usually tell people when I play this song move my buttons and yeah. smack but uh that most people almost almost nobody that sits in their car and is like hey man turn that up that's my favorite singer they just like never say that they always say turn that up that's my favorite song mm. and it's long before most songs happen especially when you start a band and weirdly i've done it four times now 
have started a band from yeah. scratch. Yeah. The the first song they know from you, they don't know you. Right. They're like, who who was that? I've had more people say, man, I remember hearing Baby Girl and calling the radio station going, was that a new Terry Clark song or was that a new whatever? And they're like, no, no, it's a band called Sherilyn. And they're like, what? So uh, the first song of any band has to be intoxicating, has mm. to be really something that that grabs you. Yeah. But it also um, is the the belief structure of the band. You know, like you put out, I tell new artists now, you put out two, three, four songs. You want them all to be pointing the same direction. They don't have to tell the same story, but they have to live not in just in the same Marvel universe, but in the same movie. Yeah. Yeah. Because nobody knows you and they actually don't care. <laughs> yeah. But they care about that song. Could have made them feel something about their own life. Right. Right. So when we wrote this song, it was, it was an audition song, right? We were auditioning. Yep. yep. And um, the only thing we really all had in common was that we had called our parents at some point in our lives and said, hey, you know, mom, I'm going to be a musician. He's like, crickets. Right? And uh, can you please send me some money? Yeah. I, yeah. I know I'll pay you back. <laughs> right. But I just need a little bit of money to just get. And so if you've ever been the kid that made the call or the parent that's picking up the phone now, yep. it's where I find myself. And then this could be your song. Um this was like a, and remember, nobody knew the band. Nobody knew anything. We hadn't even told anybody. Yeah. So when you write this, you weren't there trying to write a hit. You're just writing a song that made sense. And uh, most of my songs are wishes. So if you can come from that perspective, it makes a lot more sense too. Mm -hmm. I wish I could pay my parents. But funny enough, you know, the song actually worked. Yeah. <laughs> As like a, I don't know, like a, wish in a bottle or something like later on it went off and worked they say this town stars stay up all night don't know can't see for the glow of the neon light long way from here to the place where the home fires burn Well, it's 2,000 miles and one left turn Dear mom and dad, please send money I'm so broke, it ain't funny Don't need much, just enough to get me through Please don't worry, cause I'm alright Playing here at the bar tonight this time I'm gonna make our dreams come true I love you more than anything in the world Love your baby girl Black town, blue sky Big town full of little white lights Everybody's your friend, you can never be Sure. They promise fancy cars and diamond rings and all sorts of shiny things. Girl, you'll remember what your knees are for. Dear mom and dad, please send money. I'm so broke, it ain't funny. 
Don't need much, just enough to get me Please don't worry, cause I'm alright I'm playing here at the bar tonight This time I'm gonna make our dreams come true Cause I love you more than anything in the world Love your baby girl I know that I'm on my way I can tell every time I play And it's worth all the dues I pay And I can write to you and say Dear mom and dad, I'll send money I'm so rich, it ain't funny Ought to be more than enough to get you Please don't worry cause I'm alright I'm staying here at the Reds tonight What do you know we made our dreams come true Cause fancy cars and diamond rings And all sorts of shiny things They all add up to nothing compared to you just remember me and rhythms and curves. I still love you more than anything in the world. Love your baby girl. Come on, man. I right? love it. Yeah. So good. So good. I was just like taken back in time. Like just, yeah. That's great, man. Yeah, I love, I love what songs do. Yeah. Well, man, as we wrap up, uh, thanks again for being here. It's so great to see you again, too. It's great um, to see you. And I love all of this multiple versions of you that you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. get it. Yeah. I yeah. understand this. Um. All right. So. Final question. Yes. Uh, everything that you've gone through, all the reinventions, yes. uh, the the beautiful musical journey. Um, if you go back to eight year old Christian, <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> yeah. uh, what advice do you give yourself today? Don't freak out. It's not your last record. Mm. Just try not to freak out when things fall apart. Just, I just, that was a, I probably stressed myself way more than I should have. That, um, but maybe it's just that. Maybe it's just like, hey, because I remember treating those early records almost all of them, like, I'm only going to get this, so I'm going to give it everything I've got. Mm. And if it doesn't work out, you can make another one, yeah. you know? And I, I just didn't know that was true. I thought that these were very rarefied moments where you got to do this. And it turns out you can just decide. Um, 
And it took a long time to figure that out. So I'd tell eight-year-old me to uh, continue to have fun. Dude, you've already got it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But uh, this is not your last one. So every time you do something, remember, you're doing it to do it again. You're not doing it, and that's it. Yeah. It's like this is not the last girl you'll ever kiss when she breaks your heart, and you're not going to kiss anyone else forever. That's not true. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, if you want to, you can put 52 songs out in 52 weeks. (laughs) Trust me, man. You can do a whole lot more than you think you can. Uh, uh, You just got to give yourself permission to do it. I love it. Well, man, thanks again. So much fun. My uh, joy. My joy. I can't wait to see what uh, happens with some of these mashups and uh, have you back and just talk about it. Yeah, we should do that at some point. Yeah. I'll catch you up on... Which ones work? Yeah. You can also just apparently watch the internet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is that World Wide Web thing that we yeah, have. You yeah. T- so. You type my name in and I'm like a Netflix show that you just <laughs> discovered and you're you're like, wait a minute. And you get the drop down. And you're like, there are nine previous seasons. That's me. Yeah. It's my whole life right uh, there. I love it. <laughs> Well, well, thank you guys so much for listening. This has been another episode of Stories Behind the Songs. You've been listening to Christian Bush, and we will see you next time. This has been an episode of Stories Behind the Songs with Chris Blair. For more information after the show, head over to chrisblair.com. That's where you can find information on these episodes, trailer notes, video links, all kinds of great stuff. Also, make sure to leave us a great rating on iTunes. Like and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave us a comment. Let us know what you think. I really hope that you think this show is awesome and we really appreciate the love and support. I promise to keep gathering great content and continuing to sit down with more amazing songwriters and artists as we grow. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for the support. We'll see you next time.